Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Lower extremity arterial disease, commonly known as peripheral arterial disease, affects approximately 65 million people in the United States and over 200 million people in the world. Patients who are afflicted by this condition are not only at risk for major adverse cardiovascular events, but also face the risk of critical limb ischemia that can lead to amputation. To reduce the risk for future cardiovascular and limb events, the historical mainstay for management included antithrombotics. Recently, dual pathway inhibition has been explored to inhibit thrombus formation via dual pathways, including inhibition of platelet activation with the use of aspirin and the attenuation of thrombin generation with rivaroxaban in this high-risk population. Pharmacist Sheena Braga will review current literature on the use of low-dose rivaroxaban in combination with aspirin in the management of lower extremity arterial disease. And good morning to all of you. Thank you for being here with me today as we discuss lower extremity arterial disease or LEAD. In the United States, it is more commonly known as peripheral arterial disease or PAD. So for the rest of my presentation, I will be referring to it as PAD. This condition affects approximately 65 million Americans and over 200 million people globally. However, it is still left underdiagnosed and undertreated. Even though we know that many patients who suffer from PAD are not only at a high risk for major adverse cardiovascular events, but as well as major adverse limb events, including acute limb-threatening ischemia and unfortunately sometimes limb amputations. The mainstay treatment for PAD has always been our antithrombotics, and specifically our antiplatelet agents. However, as clinicians, we always have to ask ourselves, is there anything else that we need to do for our patients to re help them further reduce their risk of these adverse outcomes. Therefore, for the goal of this presentation is to explore this idea of dual pathway inhibition therapy or DPI. And let's see if this will ever take the lead in the management for PAD. My goal, is, my goal for us today is to review the pathophysiology of PAD and this proposed mechanism of DPI therapy. And then we'll delve into the primary literature and look at the clinical trials that really helped us um, with the recommendations that we currently have. Additionally, most importantly, I want us to be able to identify those select patient population at the end of this presentation who we think could definitely benefit from DPI therapy. LEAD or PAD is an atherosclerotic disease that affects those arteries from your hip down to the pedal arteries. So normally in a healthy peripheral artery, we have a good normal blood flow. But with PAD, plaque can build up in, that, uh, in the arteries uh, that supply the lower extremities and can cause restricted blood flow. Um, and then so decreasing blood supply, decreasing um, blood supply into those lower extremities leading to pain or claudication. And claudication is defined as having those achiness in the lower extremity muscles, and it's also reproducible at a set distance of walking and can be um, relieved by rest. 
If PAD is left undertreated, it can lead to complications including critical limb ischemia or CLI or an acute limb-threatening ischemia or ALI. CLI is a sign of progressive uh, disease, and it's normally defined as having those achiness, ulceration, um, pain at rest, and gangrene, gangrenous tissue for over two weeks. An ALI, as the name suggests, it's a more acute process. So it's a sudden onset of those severe claudication defined as having pain at rest, pulselessness, pallor, paresthesia, and sometimes paralysis. Some of the major risk factors that we need to watch out for with PAD includes hypertension, diabetes, smoking, hyperlipidemia, and sedentary lifestyle. Now, I really want to stress out that's going to be important for us to address each of these comorbidities because we know that the more risk factor a patient has, the higher their likelihood is of um, experiencing PAD later on in life. I also want to stress that with smoking, this is where we come in as pharmacists to really encourage our patients with smoking cessation because it can take up to 30 years for their, for their risk to be reduced back to baseline before they, were, before they started smoking. So we looked at some of the major risk factors. What do we have of as far as recommendations for screening for PAD? So looking at the American Heart Association or AHA's recommendations back in 2016, they said that we need to screen for PAD in adults at an increased risk. So what do they mean by that? They mean all adults over 65 years, adults 50 to 64 that have those major risk factors that we talked about, as well as if they have a family history of PAD. Additionally, they also mentioned that Adults younger than 50, if they have diabetes, they should also be screened for PAD. On the contrary, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force in 2018 did not offer a conclusive recommendation as for those patients who are not currently exhibiting any signs for PAD. Now, I want to direct your attention to this image on the left. This is a depiction of the ankle brachial index, or ABI. It's a non-invasive di diagnostic method that we use to diagnose and screen for PAD. So essentially what we do here is we compare the ankle systolic blood pressure to the systolic blood pressure in the brachial arteries. Now, if this ratio is less than 0.9, this is suggestive of some kind of narrowing in the arteries in the lower extremities and suggestive of PAD and may need other diagnostic testing, including duplex ultrasound, a CTA, an MRA, or a catheter-based angiography. Now let's take a pause here and take a look at our first assessment question with JN. JN is a 68-year-old male, and please keep him in mind because we're actually going to be revisiting him later as well. So he comes to you in the outpatient clinic saying he's having some aching and burning in his legs. That is worse than when he's walking from his front door to the mailbox. Thankfully, the pain is relieved at rest. I have listed his past medical history on there and his medications as well. On the top right corner there at the on the table are some of his vital signs and pertinent lab values. So my question is, which risk factors do you think may have contributed to the development of PAD in our patients? So please um, text MayoRx at 22333 or respond through the Poll Everywhere website. So for the sake of time, I'm actually going to be discussing the answers as they pour in. So I love what I'm seeing so far. Diabetes, definitely one of the major risk factors. Hypertension, smoking, yes. I'm so glad that someone caught smoking. Um, as I'm Put on the past medical history, yes, uh, JN did stop five years ago, but as, as, as I mentioned, it can take up to 30, year, 30 years for that baseline or for that risk to be reduced back to baseline. So great job, guys. Um, 
you know, it's I, I still want to commend him for being able to do that because I know it's hard to quit smoking. But thank you for your participation. Just going back real quickly, I want to direct your attention to his medication list, especially at the bottom there with aspirin, 81 milligrams. Now, let's take a look at what the role is of antiplatelet therapy and the management of PAD. So what you see on this image are two parts. At the top there, you have uh, the, anti or the coagulation cascade, essentially with thrombin um, generation. But what I really want to focus on is the role of platelets and the role of antiplatelets. Um, specifically aspirin and its inhibition of the COX-1 enzyme and the P2Y12 inhibitor um, or clopidogrel. And what essentially what happens here is that with PAD, again, as I mentioned, it's an atherosclerotic disease, so plaque can build up in those arteries. And what happens when plaque is disrupted is it can actually lead to platelet activation, leading to platelet aggregation. So it makes sense why we utilize antiplatelet therapy for the management of PAD. However, as clinicians, again, we always have to make sure that this is true in real life as well and in real life patients. So that's why we do these meta-analyses in different clinical trials. So one of those meta-analyses includes the antithrombotic trialist collaboration in 2002. So they looked at multiple randomized controlled trials with the objective to determine the effects of antiplatelet therapy in those patients they considered to be at a high risk for occlusive vascular events. And so their primary endpoint was looking at serious vascular events, including non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or vascular death. And what they found was, yes, there was a 23% reduction when we utilized antiplatelet therapy, and that included patients with intermittent claudication and peripheral grafting and angioplasty. And this is why we were able to extrapolate data um, from this um, ATC meta-analysis, because they did include those patients with PAD. And the most, I want to know as well that the most utilized antiplatelet therapy in this uh, meta-analysis was aspirin. And this is why we see aspirin utilized for the management of PAD. In addition, there was one trial that looked at, uh, they found one trial that looked at clopidogrel versus aspirin. And this trial actually found that clopidogrel had a lower incidence rate of these vascular events in patients with MI stroke and PAD. So let's explore that even further with the Capri trial in 1996. Now, I know this trial is as old as me. However, what we have to remember is that with, um, with PAD, there's a lot of extrapolation that we need to do because we just so simply do not have a lot of data and clinical trials that solely looked into PAD. So that's why we have to extrapolate those data from those bigger trials that looked at coronary artery disease or other cardiovascular outcomes. Anyways, moving back into the Capri trial, they looked at clopidogrel versus high-dose aspirin with a primary endpoint of rate of ischemic stroke, MI, and leg amputations. And what they found was a significant benefit in the clopidogrel versus aspirin group. And this was a similar finding in the PAD subgroup as well. Additionally, they did not find any um, major differences in the primary safety outcome. So this is why we were able to um, add clopidogrel into um, the management for PAD and to our toolkit, basically. So then we asked the question, well, is there another antiplatelet therapy that works in a different side of action um, that is better than clopidogrel or aspirin? So the trap Timmy in 2012 looked at Vorapaxor versus placebo with a primary endpoint of composite of death from CV causes, MI or stroke. Now, if you see with their primary efficacy endpoints, we did find significant reduction with the Vorapaxor group versus placebo. However, we also found that there was an increased risk for moderate to severe bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage in the Vorapaxor group. Oops, 
And this is why we don't use Vorapaxor for PAD. Additionally, again, we found that, you know, a P2Y12 inhibitor like clopidogrel worked. Well, why not another P2Y12 inhibitor? So we'll look at ticagrelor versus clopidogrel in the Euclid trial, um, a similar primary endpoint with traptimi. What we found was there, was there were no differences in the primary efficacy and safety outcomes. Uh, so we don't usually see ticagrelor in the management of PAD because we also have to think about other patient-specific factors, including uh, medication adherence, especially that ticagrelor is a twice-daily dosing versus once-daily dosing with, with clopidogrel. And then thinking about costs as well. Uh, clopidogrel is probably be, uh, it's going to be on a lot of um, formulations and it's probably less expensive than ticagrelor. So now we also wanted to know more information about dual antiplatelet therapy. Well, if we add dual antiplatelet therapy, is there any added benefit to it? And that is what the Charisma trial uh, sought out to find in 2006. So they compared clopidogrel and low-dose aspirin versus placebo and aspirin, essentially monotherapy with our antiplatelets. But the primary endpoint of composite of MI, stroke, or death from cardiovascular disease. And again, we were able to extrapolate data from this trial because they also included patients with PAD. What they found essentially was there, there were no differences in the primary efficacy and primary safety outcome. However, I, I want to say that there is a caveat to this. Two trials, the MIRROR trial and the, um, Cho and colleagues found that maybe there's some evidence that shows reduction in revascularization, major adverse cardiovascular events, and major, major adverse limb events with dual antiplatelet therapy in a select patient population. And those are patients who have undergone post-revascularization. So just keep that in mind. So I know I talked a, about a lot of those clinical trials. So some of the key takeaway points I want you, I want you to remember is that yes, we did find that antiplatelet therapy um, reduced serious vascular occlusive events, including PAD patients, and that clopidogrel showed benefit in preventing those cardiovascular events. Vorapaxor was associated with increased bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage, and ticagrelor did not show any difference compared to clopidogrel. Additionally, there were no differences in the addition of dual antiplatelet therapy versus monotherapy. But again, remembering that maybe there's some evidence in those patients that are opposed to vascularization. So now moving back into our patient, JN, uh, similar information that is presented to you. But my next question is, what recommendations would you like to make with his antithrombotic therapy based on the literature that we just reviewed? A, continue aspirin, 81 milligrams daily. B, switching aspirin to clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily. C, adding clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily. Or D, adding ticagrelor, 90 milligrams BAD. And I would say, so far, I'm liking the answer that I, uh, the answer is that I'm seeing. So again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to say this is a trick question. Um, you can actually do either A or B. So as I mentioned um, with A, with our antiplatelet therapy um, or the meta-analysis that we did with the ATC, they did find that um, aspirin was the most utilized um, antiplatelet agent. So that's why we use it for um, PAD. However, there were also two trials, right, that looked at clopidogrel versus aspirin and found um, significant benefit with clopidogrel. But what I want you to think about as well is patient costs and just patient access to the medication. Um, a lot of times you'll probably see patients um, be on aspirin because it's over the counter and it's probably a lot less expensive than clopidogrel. But either way, you can do either 
A, aspirin or switching aspirin to clopidogrel if it is covered by insurance. C is not um, the right answer because essentially this is dual antiplatelet therapy in addition to D. However, um, our patient did not have a history of revascularization. Um, so just thinking about those, uh, the trials that we've looked at. So C and D are not the right answer because so far uh, JN doesn't have any history of revascularization. So now we also have um, some guidance from the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, and they updated this rec their recommendations in 2016. And essentially what they said, what they recommended was aspirin alone or clopidogrel alone in those patients with symptomatic PAD. Now I'm highlighting symptomatic because these were the patient population that were enrolled in those clinical trials. For dual antiplatelet therapy, they did say that it may be reasonable, again, in those select patient population. What I found interesting was they recommended maybe antiplatelet therapy, may, it may be reasonable in those patients, patients with asymptomatic um, PAD. Now, I think what they try to do here is acknowledge that patients with or without symptoms for PAD are still at a high risk for these adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Because again, um, PAD is an atherosclerotic disease that can lead to these other cardiovascular outcomes. And then lastly, they did not recommend the utilization of oral anticoagulation plus antiplatelet th anti therapy at this point in 2016, because they just did not have any um, data to support this. Now, what were they referring to when they were talking about oral anticoagulation with antiplatelet therapy? And essentially, what they meant by that was this idea of dual pathway inhibition or DPI therapy that I briefly alluded to at the very beginning of the presentation. So we have, again, our mainstay treatment, antiplatelets, uh, specifically aspirin, um, COX-1 inhibitor, plus in addition to a factor 10A inhibitor, specifically here, rivaroxaban. And what happens is that um, it is proposed that with plaque disruption, it doesn't only cause platelet um, activation, but it can also potentiate the generation of thrombin because of that tissue factor exposure. So that's why they've proposed adding factor 10A inhibitor to, uh, or to help with the generation of thrombin and reduce that. So therefore, by blocking both of these pathways by combining an antiplatelet therapy with an anticoagulation, we're hoping that this has the potential to be more effective than inhibiting just either pathway alone. So there were two landmark trials that looked at DPI therapy. The first one that we will be discussing is a COMPASS trial in 2017. Now, this was in 2017. They published the results in 2017, just a year after the um, AHA-ACC um, updated their guidelines. So this is why I was mentioning that at that point in 2016, they just didn't have enough data to support that um, recommendation. However, in 2017, the COMPASS trial came out with the results. This was a randomized controlled trial that looked at three different interventions. Here in the middle is our mainstay treatment or our standard of care low-dose aspirin. And um, comparing it to rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams PID plus low-dose aspirin, essentially this is our DPI therapy, but they also wanted to see if, um, they also wanted to compare this to just oral anticoagulation alone. They included patients with CAD and or PAD. If patients were included or enrolled for CAD, they had to have these certain characteristics. If they were enrolled for PAD, essentially they had to have some kind of history of revascularization or symptoms, as well as positive diagnosis of PAD, either through ABI or um, 
checking um, if there's some kind of stenosis. So basically those di diagnostic methods that we talked about. The excluded patients who needed dual antiplatelet therapy, patients who needed other indications for oral anticoagulation, those are a high risk for bleeding, um, patients who had severe heart failure or severe renal dysfunction. And what they wanted to see was they wanted to check um, the efficacy and assess the efficacy for secondary cardiovascular prevention in these stable ASCVD patients with the primary efficacy endpoints of composite of CV death, stroke, or MI. For the primary safety endpoints, they wanted to look at the modified ISCH criteria for major bleeding. Now, the ISCH criteria, normally it's, they look at fatal bleeding, um, bleeding into a critical organ, as well as a drop in hemoglobin of two or more that needed blood transfusion. But what the COMPASS trial did was modify that, saying that they, con they considered all bleeding events that basically led to presentation in an acute care facility or maybe hospitalization. So they broadened their, um, their criteria for major bleeding. And I I've also listed down the secondary endpoints on here. So some of the baseline characteristics, I, I do have to mention that there were no statistically significant differences between these groups when we're talking about these characteristics. So most, a lot of patients, 38% in each of those groups had diabetes. Most of them had hypertension with a mean total cholesterol of 162. Many were smokers with a mean BMI of 28, so overweights. And um, in each of those groups, there were about 27% of en enrolled patients that had PAD. But what I really want to highlight here is that those patients that were included were the patients that had those same major risk factors that we just talked about. Again, highlighting the importance of optimization for medications and treatment for these comorbidities. So this is a Kaplan-Meier Kaplan analysis of their primary um, efficacy outcome. So we have in the y-axis a cumulative incidence of the primary outcome. Again, that was a cumulative risk of stroke, MI, or CV death. They had a mean duration follow-up of about 23 months. The x-axis is our year since randomization. What I really want to point out here in this slide is we see this green line with our DPI therapy. And it seems like there is, um, with, with this green line, it shows and suggests that maybe, um, you know, there is a significant benefit and significant reduction of our primary outcome when we utilize two or when we, when we inhibit two pathways, instead of just inhibiting, um, you know, instead of just using aspirin or anticoagulation alone. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at the statistics even closer. So just to, I know this is this is a busy slide, but first I want you to focus on the slide in the middle with our aspirin, um, our standard of care, and we'll compare it to rivaroxaban five milligrams BID. So what they found um, when we when they compared aspirin monotherapy and anticoagulation monotherapy, as you see there, there were no major differences between the primary outcomes. However, if we take a look at aspirin and our DPI therapy we found a significant reduction of the primary outcome when we utilize a DPI therapy. And that's including secondary outco outcome, which is a stroke, um, reduction in stroke, myocardial infarction, acute limb ischemia or CV death. Additionally, there was also a significant reduction in all-cause mortality. But what about for safety? Um, we also, of course, um, it, in the addition of antithrombotics, we always have to consider bleeding as well. So again, comparing aspirin to our rivaroxaban alone group, there was, um, we did find a significant um, 
increased risk for the modified ISTH major bleeding criteria um, in, the D in the rivaroxaban alone group. And they also found an increased risk for fatal bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage, as well as GI bleeds. Let's take a look at now and compare it to our DPI therapy. So when we compare aspirin monotherapy versus a DPI therapy, we still did find an increased risk for bleeding and the modified, when we look at the modified ISTH criteria, also found that if you look at the um, hazard ratio and the p-value at the bottom of GI bleeding, there was also an increased risk for GI bleeding. However, what I really want to stress out when we're comparing this to our rivaroxaban alone group, the DPI therapy group did not show any major differences in intracranial bleeding um, as well as fatal bleeding. Um, so that's something that I want to, for you guys to note there because with the rivaroxaban alone group, we found um, increased risk for all of those major bleeding events. Now, what I really appreciated Oops. What I really appreciate with the COMPASS trial was they did a sub-analysis for PAD patients. Again, as I mentioned, there were, there's not a whole lot of information in clinical trials just looking solely at PADs. So I really appreciated that they did this. So when we look at aspirin again versus our rivaroxaban alone group, um, we found they found no differences in the um, primary outcome. But if we look at aspirin with our DPI therapy, um, we did find a redu reduction in the primary outcome, including a reduction in those major adverse limb events that we really want to avoid in these patients. Um, they also found a reduction in acute limb ischemia. So for this table, what I really want to point out is patients with high-risk features um, on the bottom, listed on the bottom there, they had a significant um, reduction, they had more um, reduction in their in these primary outcomes. However, I also want to point out that they also have um, a high risk for major bleeding. So this is really where um, we have to remember that this is going to be a risk benefit discussion with the patients and the providers. So some takeaway points I would like um, for you to remember is that we did find DPI therapy to reduce the risk of those CV death, stroke, and non-fatal MI in patients with stable ASCVD, and that included patients with PAD. We also found that uh, in the COMPASS trial, um, they found DPI therapy reducing the risk for major adverse limb events in those patients with symptomatic PAD. However, um, there was an increased risk for major bleeding, specifically gastrointestinal. But what I really want to point out was there were no differences in fatal bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage in the DPI therapy versus aspirin monotherapy. So these are some of the strengths and limitations that I've identified um, from the COMPASS trial. I think that I was able to appreciate that they performed an ABI or an ankle brachial index in all trial patients at baseline, because this way uh, they were able to truly identify those patients who or accurately identify those patients who had PAD as compared to just relying to outside sources or past diagnosis. And then they also compared DPR to our standard of care, which is aspirin. Um, so it's always good to know if what we're doing now in clinic um, is what's best for a patient or if, there, if there's something that we can be doing better for patients. Additionally, the use of a modified ISTH was something that I think was also one of their strengths because I think it's always good to consider all bleeding events important, um, especially considering that these patients, high-risk patients, are also at a high risk for these major bleeding events. 
some of the limitations that I've identified was this, this study was actually terminated, terminated early. So this can overestimate efficacy results and potentially underestimate their safety results. Additionally, about 2,000 patients failed adherence and tolerance in the run-in phase, and this could potentially increase selection bias and decrease generalizability. So now moving into the Voyager PAD trial in 2020, this is um, the second landmark trial that looked at DPI therapy. This again was a randomized controlled trial um, comparing our DPI therapy versus just aspirin alone. They included patients at, um, who are the who are age 50 or older with symptomatic PAD or revascularization within 10 days for symptomatic PAD. Again, they excluded patients who needed dual antiplatelets for six months, um, any patients who needed oral anticoagulation for other indications, high risk, um, bleed risk, uh, patients who had revascularization for asymptomatic disease, um, patients who had an acute limb ischemia within two weeks prior to revascularization, and acute coronary syndrome, syndrome within 30 days. Um, what they also did was stratified, by, stratified their patients by revascularization approach and the use of clopidogrel. Their primary um, objective was looking at the efficacy and safety of rivaroxaban in those patients with symptomatic PAD who have undergone lower extremity revascularization. Um, their primary efficacy endpoint was looking at the reduction of the composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, MI, ischemic stroke, or death from cardiovascular disease, with the primary endpoints, uh, primary safety endpoint of major bleeding per TIMI classification. Their secondary primary or their secondary efficacy or safety endpoint was looking at major bleeding per ISDH classification. So again, for baseline characteristics, there were no statistically significant differences between these groups with these characteristics. So as I'm highlighting here, most of them had diabetes, um, majority had hypertension, Th about 30% had a history of chronic limb ischemia, many of them were smokers with a mean BMI of 26, so overweight. The median ABI was 0.56, suggesting of a more severe um, presentation of claudication and a PAD. So about majority of patients actually had a history of claudication. 36% of those had previous um, peripheral revascularization. Um, most of them that had revascular revascularization procedure um, underwent endovascular procedure versus surgical procedure, and over half of the patients in each group received clopidogrel for up to six months post-revascularization. So in this uh, Kaplan-Meier analysis, what I really, again, want to point out was with a DPI therapy, they found a significant reduction of the primary outcome um, when they did their analysis. And what I want to point out was that they found a significant benefit even within 90 days, so as early as 90 days, and it accrued over time as well. So with the Voyager PAD trial, what they found was a significant reduction in all those efficacy outcomes that they looked at, including their primary outcome, unplanned revascularization for recurrent ischemia, in addition to hospitalization for coronary or peripheral thrombotic events. For the safety outcomes, what I want to point out, again, they compared two um, major bleeding criteria, the TIMI and the ISTH. So essentially, the difference between TIMI and ISTH is that the ISTH criteria has a lower threshold of the fall in hemoglobin level of two or more as compared to TIMI. Um, the TIMI, TIMI classification actually um, classifies major bleeding um, when the hemoglobin um, drops from fall 
five or more um, grams per deciliter. And what they found with a Voyager PAD trial was there was there were no differences in the Timmy major bleeding criteria. But if you look at the ISDH major bleeding criteria, they found a um, more bleeding events in in those in those patients. So kind of just keeping that in mind as well when um, we're using the data from the Voyager PAD trial. Um, for this slide right here, what I really want to point out was there are no differences um, in the utilization of clopidogrel um, in for the Voyager PAD trial. They did, as I mentioned, they did allow for clopidogrel use, and the me median duration of clopidogrel use was about 29 days. Um, the clopidogrel use versus if you're not using clopidogrel did not affect the efficacy outcome or um, the Timmy major bleeding outcome as well. So for summary, um, the Voyager PAD trial, as I mentioned, included patients with symptomatic PAD within 10 days post-revascularization. Um, they found that DPI therapy did show, show reduction in those primary outcome of um, ALI, major amputation, MI, ischemic stroke, and CV death. And as their Kaplan-Meier analysis um, suggests, they did see some benefits um, as early as 90 days and that accrued over time. And DPI therapy also was shown to reduce those unplanned revascularization and hospitalization for peripheral thrombosis. Additionally, as I mentioned, no differences in the efficacy and safety outcomes in terms of clopidogrel use, no differences in major bleeding per TIMI criteria, but increased bleeding incidence per ISCH criteria. So just keeping that in mind. So some of the strengths and limitations, I think that with the Voyager PAD trial, um, with their data that they showed us, they were able to provide us with some guidance on the role of DPI therapy in those patients with more acute presentation of PAD. And because they did permit clopidogrel use at the discretion of the investigator, I think this kind of mimicked uh, what we usually do in clinic um, because a lot of um, many surgeons and providers still opt um, to use clopidogrel or duantiplatelet therapy versus DPI therapy at this point. Some of the limitations as well is that I wish that they compared DPI therapy to dual antiplatelet therapy head to head, um, because again, we want to see if there was any differences between the, the use of dual antiplatelet therapy versus DPI and those patients are post revascularization. Additionally, the utilization of two different bleeding criteria, TIMI versus ISCH, um, I found that to be a limitation because um, we just really have to be careful with. I guess what Tim, uh, what um, bleeding criteria we're utilizing when we are applying these to our patients in clinic. So who do we consider uh, would be would have benefits with, when we're utilizing DPI therapy? So when we're thinking about those select patient populations who could benefit the most for in DPI therapy, we want to think about those patients that they've included in the Compass trial and the Voyager PAD trial. So those are patients with high risk comorbidities and high risk limb presentation. Patients with high-risk comorbidities include those with reduced renal function, concurrent major risk factors, including hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, and hyperlipidemia. Again, those uh, major risk factors that we talked about, um, if they have concurrent coronary artery disease or um, two or more effective vascular beds. And then for patients with high-risk limb presentations, that would include previous amputation, previous revascularization, pain at rest, necrosis, or gangrene of the limb. Um, and then we also want to think about who we want to avoid DPI therapy on. And those are our patients with 
uh, credit clearance of less than 15 mls per minute because rivaroxaban is contraindicated in this subset of patients. Of course, if they have any allergy to aspirin or rivaroxaban, High financial burden as well with rivaroxaban. We have to think about that. Some patients may they may be able to use manufacturer coupon or apply for prescription assistance programs um, with their insurances. Patients who have a high risk for bleeding as well, um, and also the need for long-term anticoagulation, especially in those patients with concurrent AFib, mechanical valve, valve um, antiphospholipid syndrome, and the need for extended VTE treatment. And other considerations that we need to think about as well is that if the patient has a need for some kind of short-term anticoagulation, um, specifically for those that need initial VTE treatment, we may want to reconsider DPI therapy later on, around one to six months, um, once or once they finish their oral anticoagulation treatments. Additionally, we also want to consider if they need to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for over a month. If it is over a month, we want to... Uh, just continue with the dual antiplatelet therapy and revisit DPI therapy in three to six months because we don't want patients to be on triple therapy, uh, triple therapy either because their risk of bleeding also increases with that. Additionally, we also want to confirm appropriate dose of aspirin with DPI therapy. What we have so far um, with data um, is showing um, the use of low dose aspirin, not our full dose aspirin. Additionally, we also want to review other medications and contraindications with the rivaroxaban. And lastly, one of, what I want to point out is we also have to consider patients who are extremely obese, because in the uh, COMPASS trial and Voyager PAD trial, as I pointed out, these patients were in the overweight category. Um, so we don't really have a whole lot of data as far as the utilization of DPI therapy, especially, especially with such a low dose of rivaroxaban. We don't have data if this is beneficial or have any added benefits to those patients, uh, to those patients who are um, considered um, extremely obese. Of course, since we're talking about anticoagulation and antiplatelet, we also have to think about bleeding risk factors, namely the need um, for dual antiplatelet therapy or oral anticoagulation therapy, as I mentioned, any history of significant bleeding, GI ulceration, because we found that um, there was a significant increase in GI bleeding in, in patients who were on DPI therapy. And then of course, prior intracranial hemorrhage or major bleeding and, and any hepatic disease. So on to our last patient assessment question. So Jayan comes back to you for a follow-up visit. This is three months after his femoral endo endovascular intervention with balloon angioplasty. And then I, I also want to note that he completed three months of dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel here. Um, another thing to know as well is his ABI actually improved from 0.85 to 0.98 post-revascularization. Do you think Jayan qualified for DPI therapy? A, no, the patient is not a candidate for DPI and has, has a high bleeding risk. Or B, no, the patient is a former smoker and should not be started on DPI. C, yes, the patient is a candidate for DPI, so we'll, we will initiate rivaroxaban plus aspirin. Or D, yes, the patient is a candidate for DPI, so we'll initiate apixaban plus aspirin. I would say that I agree with most of um, the answers, the majority of you guys would see. Um, yes, the patient is now a candidate for DPI therapy, so we can revisit DPI therapy and add rivaroxaban plus aspirin, especially that he is post-revascularization, so he can really benefit from DPI therapy. A is not the right answer, um, just because um, 
as I mentioned, he already finished his duante platelet therapy, and there's no, I did not suggest on the past medical history that he had any kind of bleeding risk or um, any history of intracranial hemorrhage or um, um, GI bleed in the past. B is also not the right answer because um, being a former smoker does not exclude you from um, receiving DPI therapy. Um, this is being a former smoker is actually some of them or one of the major risk factors that we talked about. And then D um, with a plus aspirin. This was a, a trick um, option on here because right now we don't actually have data that looks at that, that looks at um, apixaban and aspirin. Right now, we really only have data on the use of low dose rivaroxaban with low dose aspirin. So in 2021, the European Society of Cardiology updated their consensus statements. So they recommend um, aspirin or clopidogrel in patients with symptomatic PAD or post-revascularization if, if they are high bleeding risk. Uh, they also recommended DPI therapy in those patients with chronic or symptomatic PAD or um, polyvascular disease if they don't have that high risk for bleeding. Additionally, they recommended the the consideration of DPI therapy in those patients following surgical or endovascular revascularization, as long as they're not a high risk for bleeding. Lastly, they also made mention of dual antiplatelet anti therapy as an alternative to dual platelet inhibition following endovascular PAD therapy. And this is why I really wish we had a trial that looks head to head um, or compares head to head. DPI therapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy so that we have more data to support this. But some of the treatment consideration, just kind of as just a summary for this presentation, is when we're thinking about DPI therapy in a patient, please do assess the indications that are needing other treatment um, dose for uh, direct oral anticoagulation. For DPI, again, if they're going to be on clopidogrel, making sure that we define the maximal length of time for clopidogrel use and assessing at least annually the appropriateness of DPI therapy. Don't switch rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams PID with a pixaban 2.5 milligrams PID or other, other DOAX. Again, we just don't have a lot. Of, we don't have data as of right now to support that use. I mean, don't use rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams data or BID without aspirin um, or using other antiplatelet agents because as I mentioned, no data on that yet. Then I want you to consider as well the cost of rivaroxaban, medication adherence, and optimization of those other guideline-based therapies, including those statins, antihypertensive, and most notably tobacco cessation. I also want to caution um, patients, especially if they have any concurrent use with NSAIDs, get that because that can increase their bleeding risk. If they have um, a history of heavy alcohol consumption, and caution with the use of triple therapy with aspirin, rivaroxaban, and clopidogrel. And as a summary, um, as we learned, PAD is an atherosclerotic disease with an increased risk for major adverse cardiovascular and major adverse limb events. And so our historical mainstay treatment has always been um, antiplatelet th therapy, specifically aspirin and clopidogrel. But now it seems like we have a new leading, uh, leading therapy with DPI. DPI is showing to have some benefits and reduction in those incidents of uh, MACE and MALE in those patients with PAD per the COMPASS and the Voyager PAD trials. And additionally, um, now that we've talked about um, 
peripheral arterial disease, I want you to start thinking about those patients with, um, with those major risk factors and maybe start thinking about um, and considering DPI therapy in those select patient populations. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.